the promise of technology is often misunderstood. When a new technology is introduced, the expectations of it are very, very high, and the, the actual outcomes of the, the results it produces are very low. That's a very, very large level of effort to, to implement these technologies and to change the way that, that organizations work. Hello and welcome to episode 96 of Chaos and Rocket Fuel, the Future of Work podcast. This is the podcast that continues to look at every aspect of work in the future. It's brought to you by Wanda and Patton. I'm your host, Doug Folks, and my co-host is the CEO at Wanda, Claire Haydar. Claire, nice to be on the podcast again with you this week. Doug, it's always good to be back in the studio with you and, you know, recording these sessions and conversations with you. I, they're a highlight week to week with me. Claire, Jonathan Hensley, he's the CEO of Emerge Interactive. We're chatting to him about product design in the future. Bring us up to speed quickly on what people missed last time and what they can expect from today's episode. So Doug, very quickly, reason why I'm excited about this conversation that's unfolding is because I believe that work is going through a very large evolutionary shift. Um, people are moving away from the thought and the habitual practice of just expecting people to show up at work. And companies are realizing that it is becoming more and more critical to their competitive advantage to actually consider work through a design lens and to create work experiences that are meaningful because it impacts outcomes. So, you know, in segment one, we had this conversation with Jonathan and the reason why we chose Jonathan as the guest to have this conversation with is because he is the CEO of a product building company, Emerge Interactive. And so he naturally, you know, applies design thinking principles and product building principles every single day to the products that they build for their customers. And so we're taking that and applying it to work. So in this segment number two, we're taking a step back, first of all, and actually just asking him as a baseline to give us his definition of work. And then we get into some really practical applications where we ask him to take us through some of their product building um, client examples that where they have actually worked on the work experience. So it's not that they've just built a physical product or a digital product for a customer, but that product has actually touched the work experience of the people inside that business. And very interestingly, something that surprised me in this conversation was how it actually turned into the world of medicine and the hospital experience and, you know, that whole patient care realm, which is something that every single one of us can relate to. Yes, it, uh, it went down a bit of a rabbit hole, but that's nothing new on this podcast. Let's catch up with Jonathan. I'd like us to really start applying these concepts that you've shared with us to work itself. But before we go into that application piece, do you mind sharing with us, like, what is your personal definition of work? And you can answer this because they, they're two totally interrelated things is, do you believe that work should be designed? I love the question. I've never been asked that. Um, so my definition <laughs> of work, I would say it's the activity focused on creating value would be the way I would define work. And I do absolutely believe that work should be designed and can be designed effectively. And I guess to add a little bit of context for that is part of that belief comes from depending on the type of organization that you're building and how the work culture that you're establishing, I think we have to think of work being designed 
in multiple ways. Sometimes we're trying to, in the best case scenario, in my personal opinion, is we are building a culture that empowers every person in the organization to contribute at their best level. And the structure that we can provide uh, team members to do that gives an opportunity to learn and to unlock their own potential in fulfilling that role that they have within the organization. And I think if you leave that open-ended and undefined, you really hinder the ability for an organization as a whole to collectively come together and achieve an outcome. And especially when we're focused on creating value in the world, I think that that shared understanding of how we can work together and having a structured environment for that becomes really important. Which is interesting, Doug, I know you're going to weigh in your next, but it's interesting because that completely goes back to the very first comments that you had when we asked you about the alignment pieces, which you feel are so important in product building. That comes down to that individual alignment. You know, how am I creating value and why does it matter? Yeah, I mean, in work that I've done, I've, I mean, I've, I've, there's a wonderful neuroscientist by the name of, of Dan Cable who teaches out of the London Business School. And he wrote a wonderful book called Alive at Work. And I've had the opportunity to, to work with him a little bit. And it's amazing when he has really tied this idea of alignment and this individual you know, engagement and recognition to that that's not just a psychological need or a way of, of driving a healthier culture, but it, there's actually a biological component to recognition. There's this constant innate human nature of wanting to understand cause and effect and this idea of building community to shift from why me to a why us uh, narrative in an organization where we can accomplish something as part of a team or some part of something bigger. And I think that alignment is just another expression of that, that is trying to create a, a framework for organizations to be able to bring that through into the way that they develop products. Especially though, what I think when we think about internal products and the amount of digital transformations now taking place around the world, which has only been accelerated over the last three years exponentially out of necessity, that that work has to be very intentional. And there's, there's a challenge in the type of work that we do around technology is that the promise of technology is often misunderstood. When a new technology is introduced, the expectations of it are very, very high and the, the actual outcomes of the, the results it produces are very low. That's a very, very large level of effort to, to implement these technologies and to change the way that, that organizations work and, and behavior in uh, and, and understanding. Whereas eventually as that technology matures, it absolutely accelerates beyond people's understanding and, and basic expectations and the roles now become flipped. And so as an organization is going through this transformation and we think about, you know, kind of these needs is that technology and product adoption is really actually more of a people-centered challenge than it is a technical challenge. How do we actually connect people to the power of the tool that we're creating? The technology is not the solution. It's really the power 
full tool set that we can provide you know, individuals and teams and organizations. And so I think that really understanding that human component, that is the essence of everything in an organization. The technology is only just as good as a tool as we've designed to support those people to being successful is, is just paramount. Jonathan, my next little question is really just a follow on from that is, could you give me any examples of where work has been designed or maybe where it hasn't been designed? Sure. Well, <laughs> you, I think that there's a... a <laughs> you're taking a deep breath as if this is a mission that needs to be accomplished, Jonathan. <laughs> well, it's it's a wonderfully broad question that I'm trying to think of a very specific example and, and answer to, but I think you know, I, I'm going to use a very broad example, but that, that I think everybody listening can really identify with is that, you know, we created this incredible tool over the last 30 years of, of email that everyone use professionally speaking and, and many personally. And it's this incredible tool that, that has changed the way that we work. Now, it's based on somewhat of an old mental model of you know, the of, of writing letters, something that's been around for centuries. And we've streamlined it. We've optimized it. Now we're allowed to, we can organize it and we can include groups of people in these communications. And it, it has all of these capabilities now that are incredibly powerful and important. I think that when we look at that, it's a tool that is constantly being fine-tuned to focus on true optimization and enhancement of the way that we work with very, very clear intention of those building these tools. And I think that it's a really powerful thing to think about. The same thing can be said for something like a product like Microsoft Word. When word processors first came out, they didn't have automatic spell checking. They didn't highlight the words that you were working in to say, oh, that's misspelled or maybe your grammar is incorrect. And the product uh, teams that are building these tools saw, well, what's used the most? Where can we create value? Where can we help people? And through very selective intention, we're able to say, you know, what if we just brought this into the forefront? What if it was checking the document as I went? What if I could help correct and improve the quality of the writing that was taking place within these tools? And so I think that those are fantastic examples of taking things that are seem very basic today that are incredible enhancements of the way that we work and are very, very thoughtfully being architected by these product teams to create as much value for the end user as possible. And so I think that designing with clear intention and really having awareness of, of how a product is used and why it's used, really getting back to what drives the user is an absolutely critical thing. And when we think about you know, empowering employees, I think many organizations need to make sure that they are designing with that those same foundational principles of great product management where they're empathetic for the employee. They're understanding what drivers, they're understanding the things that they have to do all of the time in finding ways to create and add more value to that. And especially when you have leaders today that are saying, well, our people are our number one priority and our number one resource, then protecting their time so it's focused on where the most value can be created becomes just smart business. And that has to happen with intention. 
you said a word early on once and now it's starting to creep in more often and it's all about value. Just in the bit of research that I did coming into this, that was very, very apparent in in everything that you work on and and the way that you run your business, which we will get into shortly. But uh, everything is about value these days, huh? It is. And I think that it's helpful to highlight, you know, value comes in many different ways. And I think that's part of what in product we're always looking for. And especially when we're analyzing, you know, current workflows versus what could be done to support those with new product or new workflows is this idea is value can be time. It can be money. It can be attention. It can be focus. It can be the ability to to cross connect. And so I think value is often overly simplified to in the at least in the business world to revenue they they equate that to value but very often that's a horrible measure because it's a lagging indicator it's a result of everything else that's already happened and so where the real value creation is taking place is happening much much earlier on and so we need to look at where those leading moments and attributes that create the value and not you know intended outcome that doesn't really give us any insight in how to perpetuated effectively. Jonathan, it's interesting when Doug and myself were putting the framework together for our conversation today, this question, I actually asked myself the question. Um, You know what I mean? Like I put it there for you, but I asked myself the question. And the thing that came to my mind, and it's, it's purely just because we happen to be navigating this with a client of ours right now, is we're working with a hospital group to look at how we can potentially redesign their workflow to put the patient at the heart of that, which is something that you'd be very, very familiar with because that's a typical challenge that a a digital product agency would be looking at, you know? And so it's really interesting where my mind went when I answered this question was not directly to tools and the examples you've provided around like email and document processes are spot on. Like, don't know if you know this about me, but I absolutely like, I have a whole thing about email and how it's actually shaped us as humans in terms of our work behavior. And so spot on, and I couldn't agree more with you, but it's like you went down to that micro level where I was thinking about it more at a macro level, where if you look at how hospital systems today have been designed, they've been designed around process rather than value. And I didn't connect that dot when I answered the question first. I only connected that dot now in the conversation, you know, when you defined work as the activity of creating value. So I think one of the big major shifts that we're going to see with regards to how work is going to evolve within this digital transformation era that we're living in is that people are going to face that reckoning where they're going to realize that almost everything that they've built around work has been around the process and the optimization of the process rather than the value creation for the people going through the process and the people receiving whatever is being created at the end of the process. It makes complete sense. And I could not agree more. And I love the hospital example I find it so fascinating because I do think that, um, as you said, that I think the entire healthcare market is coming to a crossroads that is going to be extremely confrontational for those that have been leading these healthcare organizations for, for the last several decades around exactly what you're talking about. I think partly of what I say, and I'll, I'll speak mostly for what my 
personal experience and the work that I've done here in, in the States is that I have never met anybody in healthcare who doesn't have good intentions, but how to recognize those intentions inside of and creating a better work experience and patient experience, I think is very, very difficult. Your frontline staff, the nurses and those that are caring for patients are just incredible. But the disconnect on how they're supported to help them achieve outcomes is just unbelievable because the actual disconnect is in complete contrast to most healthcare's missions for the organization. And so it's a really big challenge that is going to have to come to a reckoning at some point. As an example, I was working with a children's hospital around workflow for for the patient. And this young girl, unfortunately, had been diagnosed with cancer. And so she first wasn't feeling good, and she ended up going to her pediatrician. The pediatrician then made a referral, and then the referral made another referral, and then they had to go to a cancer specialist. And the progress went on and on and on and on and on. None of that experience was really thought through of what's the fear? What's the process going on into that for that young girl? What does it mean for that family to have to take the time off of work? What is the stress and anxiety of stopping in the middle of day and getting to your appointment, then trying to find parking, the parking lot's full or you're in the wrong parking lot because you need to be on the other side of the hospital or the campus? What does that look like? They're kind of at every facet. And why are we making this family go through and enter the same information 15 different times? You know, so there's, there's a huge impacts on experience. And a lot of it has to do with workflow inefficiency. And we're not enabling time with patient for, for true care. So interestingly enough, the complete opposite experience of what you've just called out is I myself am navigating cancer at the moment, and I've been through the hospital system now this year, and I happen to just be referred to an incredible hospital system where I've been blown away. Like I've never experienced medicine this way in my entire life before. Yeah, it actually is a really good example that you raised there where there's clearly some hospitals like this one in Dallas that have brought that design thinking to it. And then there's others like the children's hospital that haven't yet taken it there, which leads to the point that I wanted to make. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this is when I think about these things. So like when I think about healthcare, when I think about education and all these forms of work that drive value in society, they seem to be really big, difficult, systemic challenges that it doesn't seem like agencies like our company and your company have the ability to really wield the level of change that's needed. It's almost like it needs to be addressed at a societal, governmental level. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think first off, I I should say, I'm sorry to hear that you are going through cancer, but thrilled to hear that you have found a provider who can provide you that incredible, excellent experience of care. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate that. Um, It is a gift in that circumstance. Yes. And it's really wonderful to hear that there's a there's a group out there providing that experience. It's the definitely seems to be an exception, not the norm. Well, again, I find that most providers are trying their very best with what they have to provide that where they can. To answer your your question, gosh, there's a couple of ways that I want to answer this. 
because it's a great question that is worthy of unpacking a little bit. So I guess the first part I would say is depending on the environment of the situation and the level of change that has to take place, I think that you do need to have government and policy or large-scale NGOs involved in many cases to help create the environment for that culture shift to take place. If it's within an organization, the incredible opportunity is that outside of external regulation and policy is that every organization has the ability to design their culture by intent. And I think that you either design the culture you want in an organization or you inherit the one that your leadership and your management team create unintentionally. And so I think a lot of leaders have a responsibility if they want to be stewards of that kind of change to not only really define clearly their mission, but they need to have a very clear and coherent strategy which is a a whole nother topic in itself that is tied to the actual cultural incentive of the organization itself. And so many times what I've experienced is the actual incentives within an organization are in conflict of one another across departments and functions. And so if you want to create change, we have to figure out better ways of unifying how all of our work ladders up to, I think the purpose of an organization Another facet to it, I think, is that when we design work, this goes a little bit back to the engineering example, but many times we're so focused on the steps and the functions that we lose sight of the psychological need uh, and the challenge that has to be solved there and how we actually need to engage people to become part of that process change. Many times, at least in the product space and the larger organizational transformations that I've experienced, there is this idea of we're going to go create this wonderful tool and we're going to give it to everybody and they're just going to love it. It's like, well, if they're not part of the process, then they never really felt heard. And if they're not heard, it's going to be much more difficult to connect to them the value that you want that product or service or system of change to actually produce. So do you want to hire cultural impact on trust, as an example. Well, are we evaluating our systems and our workflows based on providing trust? And what are the precursors to that trust? Transparency, honesty, direct feedback, you know, whatever those other attributes might be for that organization. But those are pretty, you know, kind of fundamental attribute of generating trust. If we're not actually evaluating our workflow and processes, and we're only looking at them of, you know, what the inputs are to the outputs for the next step, we're missing an entire layer that actually is probably the most critical layer to actually being able to enable the change. And I think that where consultants and agencies and outsiders can provide extreme value is when you have open leadership in these organizations that are looking for that perspective and are continuous learners and are looking where they're subject matter experts in what they do. They're passionate about it, but they recognize that they could be more. And that's sometimes where I think that we can have a tremendous influence on perpetuating that, that culture shift and change that isn't directly driven by, by government policy and, uh, and outside influences. Fully, fully agree with you. 
on all points that you've said. Doug, you know me. I could go down this rabbit hole for a very long time, but I will restrain myself. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to stop you, in fact. Uh, <laughs> Jonathan, I mean, we've spoken a lot in a lot of detail in this section. I've got, I do have one final question, and it might be more of a, of a comment than, than needing a full answer. My question is, if you had a magic wand, how would you redesign work for global impact? And my thought was, as you were talking, is it just as simple as looking at things through the eyes of the user or the patient? I think you nailed it perfectly. I, I would say that most organizations, to if I was wanted to wave that magic wand, it would come from that uh, leaders lead with empathy, that we lead with a, a, an understanding of, of the people that we're there to serve as leaders. I'm a big believer that the industrial era age of leadership is you know quickly falling to the wayside as it should the best thing we can do is figure out ways to not just provide opportunity for people but to actually empower them to do more and really unleash their potential and i think when we think about work we need to really think through the lens of the work that we do through through that lens of empathy i think the other key thing to that that is really important to highlight is we have to, as leaders in using empathy, do the very difficult task, especially these days, of understanding that there's a, a significant difference between truth and reality. And that's a very strange thing to maybe hear me say, but I'll put it through this kind of lens. My perception of reality is different than yours based on my personal experience and maybe how I'm looking at a problem. But there's a truth to that reality that we need to find. And many cases, I think leaders have to get kind of tunnel vision on that they confuse that their reality, their perception of that reality is the truth. And if we don't start to step into the shoes of our employees and we don't empathize with our customers and we're not practicing that ability, we are losing sight of the whole picture. And if we want to maximize the impact that we can create, then it's really important that as leaders, we never lose sight of the whole picture. And that's okay if you don't agree with, with everyone, but it's essential you don't become disconnected from that truth. And I think the most effective leaders that I've ever experienced continuously practice that. They're constantly checking themselves and reevaluating and, and trying to ensure that they have the best picture they can that has a complete and truthful view of what's happening in the world for people. Fully agreed again. And it's interesting, I was having a conversation, we invited somebody into our all hands yesterday to have a fireside chat with me. And he's just written a book on asynchronous to remote work and you know the factors that really make it successful and the factors that make it not work and one of the books that I just actually brought up in the discussion because of various dots that were connecting was and I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this book Jonathan but it's called The Courage to be Disliked I believe it's also Japanese authors um, Ikaro and Fumitaki and essentially it ties into what you're saying yeah where real leaders don't operate from this place of needing to be affirmed or needing to be 
liked as the you know title of the book says but very much operating from a place of reality and factfulness and using those array of facts to determine how best to create value which kind of brings the whole conversation full circle I love that. It's I've never uh, heard of that book, but it's now on my reading list. <laughs> okay, great. I highly recommend that you do go. And so, you know, just to give you some, you know, where it fitted into the conversation that we were having yesterday as a company was uh, Liam, the, the guest we invited, was talking about how the problem with remote work is that very often it's the person with the most charismatic personality on any zoom call that gets the most attention you know and you typically see that play out not only in remote work but in in in-person spaces and moving the whole culture very deliberately to more of a written based text actually allows more people and the research supports this allows the quiet fact-driven more introverted type of individuals within the workspace to allow their voices to actually filter up to the top, which creates healthier organizations, which creates overall more wealth and bottom line ROI for companies. Yeah, so definitely read it and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because I think a lot will actually connect there for you the way it's connecting for me. Yeah, it sounds like a wonderful book. I will definitely um, add that to my reading list and pick it up. And with that, we draw this long, involved part of our conversation about product building with Jonathan Hensley to a close. If you missed the first part of our conversation, you can check it out on your favorite podcast platform or on Wanda's website, wndyr.com. We'll conclude our chat with Jonathan shortly. From Claire and myself, we'll see you soon.